Okay, good evening everybody. Perhaps we can get started. Um, let me welcome you on behalf of LSE Health and Social Care to our annual lecture. Uh, we think it's our 12th annual lecture as uh, a centre, LSE Health and Social Care. Uh, and if we add in the lectures that LSE Health used to have, it's our 18th. So, uh, delighted to see many of you here, some familiar faces and some, some new faces. Um, and I'm delighted that uh, we have a very distinguished uh, speaker and two very distinguished discussants, and I'm going to introduce them all uh, in a moment. Uh, I'm Martin Knapp, and I'm uh, currently director of lots of things, actually, in LSE Health and Social Care. Uh, Elias Mosialos, some of you will know, uh, is otherwise uh, engaged in, in other business in Greece at the moment. Um, trying to keep the Greek economy going. Um, so I'm delighted to, on my own to welcome you this year to uh, the lecture. Now what we're going to do, Andrew's going to speak for about 35 minutes and then Nick Timmins and Jenny Owen, uh, I'll introduce the two of them in a moment, um, they will then have an opportunity to comment, uh, offer some comments and then we'll open it up to general discussion. So we'll go through the, the speaker and the discussants first and then have the uh, open discussion. Um, and in case I forget to say it later on, there's a reception afterwards which will be uh, on the fifth floor in the senior dining room. Um, now before I introduce Andrew, let me uh, just say one or two bits of housekeeping. First of all, we are recording the lecture and you'll be able to access uh, the details that you'll hear later uh, this evening uh, on the LSE Health and Social Care website a bit later on, very soon we hope. Um, secondly, there's no fire alarm test expected, um, so if there's a fire alarm goes off it's a real one. Um, and uh, just to avoid embarrassment you might want to just check your phone now and uh, put it onto silent mode. Um, and I hope I've done mine, I'll check it in a moment. Um, okay, let me introduce Andrew. Andrew Dilnot has been Principal of St Hugh's College, Oxford, since 2002, and according to uh, Wikipedia, where I often do my primary research, um, he is the only Principal of an Oxford College educated at a comprehensive school, or he was when he was appointed, maybe still is. Um, he became a Pro Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University in 2005. Um, many people will know of Andrew's previous career uh, as director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, from 1991 to 2002 and uh, I found on Wikipedia that he also taught at LSE and it was public finance in the early 1980s. Um, Andrew was awarded a CBE for two th in 2000 for services to economics and economic policy uh, and has served on many groups uh, and I'm just going to list one or two of them that are relevant I think to uh, this evening. He was on the board of the National Consumer Council on the Social Security Advisory Committee, the Retirement Income Inquiry, the Roundtree Committee on the Future Costs of Long-Term Care. Uh, he's on the Council of the Royal Economic Society and is a trustee of the Nuffield Foundation. So lots and lots of uh, relevant uh, links. Uh, he has many publications, including a book, The Tiger That Isn't, um, on the beauty of numbers. Uh, and he was founding presenter of the BBC Radio 4 series on the beauty of numbers as well, called More or Less. Um, and it's those... Uh, achievements uh, and characteristics that um, uh, made it easy for us to invite him here tonight but the main reason we invited him is because he was chair of the Commission on the Funding of Care and Support which is known to everyone probably except Andrew as the Dilnot Commission uh, and the report was published in July 2011 so Andrew will talk tonight on fairer care funding um, and then We'll go straight to the discussants. I'll introduce the discussants when we get to that point. So, um, Andrew, it's over to you. Thank you very much, Martin. It's a real delight to be here. Um, I should behave myself and turn my microphone on to 
There we go. <clears throat> now, now, now you may be able to hear me. Um, it's a real delight to be at the London School of Economics. It, the, the LSE is a fabulous institution. Martin's already said that I taught here nearly 30 years ago. The LSE has always seemed to me to stand for the application of the most rigorous sorts of social science to the biggest problems that we face. That's a fabulous goal to have. It's a fantastic set of values to stand for, and it's done that for many, many years. In recent years, the PSSRU has done fantastic work in this area. And that's been really important because for reasons that uh, are slightly worrying, it's not a terribly fashionable area. There hasn't been a huge number of academics. There isn't an enormous amount of research going on in this most important set of issues. So the PSSRU have managed to keep uh, enough going on that it hasn't stopped altogether in this country. And they've done fabulous work. And uh, you know, one of the things I want to do today is, is pay some tribute to that, because it's not always easy, because people don't take it as seriously as they should. This is an area where there's not enough attention paid. There's not enough attention paid by government. There's not enough attention paid in academia. There's not enough attention paid by the media. Actually, there's not enough attention paid by the public for reasons that are slightly understandable, but also still slightly obscure to me. We don't take this seriously enough. We don't realize how much it matters. And it's been fantastic that in the PSSRU and at the LSE, there have been people who've dedicated their lives to working on this and have done fantastic work and kept it somewhat in the public eye. The work on the Commission was enormously enjoyable. Uh, when, when I was asked to do it in July of 2010, a number of people said I was completely off my trolley for agreeing to do it, because it, you know, it, it was quite a lot of work and it, it's a pretty tricky problem. But it's an enormously important problem. It's also a problem which, as I hope we'll show tonight, there are things that we can do. And it's a problem where the application of pretty simple bits of analytical and economic and statistical analysis, I think, can take us a very long way. So it was great fun. It was enormously enjoyable. I had fabulous colleagues, both on the Commission and on the Secretariat. And it was also a great delight to work with the whole stakeholder community, uh, both academics and charities who are excited to see something done. Now, what's the background? The background is this, that um, I, I'll mainly talk about older people, although it's important to note that the Commission was not just about older people. It was also about working-age people with social care needs. And I'll say something about that later on, but I'm mainly going to talk about older people just because of time tonight. The number of older people is going to rise. So the number of 65, 69-year-olds we expect to increase by about 40% over the next 20 years. The number of people aged 85 and over is going to double. And we hear a great deal about the burden of this ageing. That is a complete misapprehension. How could it possibly be a bad thing that people are living longer? We've got this absolutely upside down. We talk again and again about the burden of ageing as though people are sorry that they're living longer. Well, of course they're not sorry, and nor should we be. It's fantastic that people are living longer. It's one of the great triumphs of the last 100 or 150 years that people are living longer. They're not dying so much. The health service is doing a better job. They are better fed. They are better off. They're alive. Most of us would rather be alive than the alternative. It's slightly uh, indelicate to put it, but the alternative to the burden of ageing is the burden of being stiff, which is by and large less preferable, um, whatever you think about it. So this is just one example of how confused debate can become, that we've allowed it to be the case that we can talk about something fantastic as though it's a problem. It's not a problem. Yes, it's a challenge, and yes, we may have to make different choices as we go forward, but we should be celebrating 
the fact that we're living longer. Now that I am beyond the age of 50, I'm very delighted by these numbers. These numbers make me feel much better than I otherwise would do. We sometimes hear people saying, well, we can't afford it. It's really important for social scientists of all forms to say that's a load of utter nonsense. That is not a well-formed formula. It is not a sensible assertion that we can't afford it. We are four times as well off as we were 50 years ago. The question about the challenge of the economic consequences of ageing is not can we afford it, which the answer is, well, that's a stupid question. It's what choices do we need to make as an economy, as a society, about what proportion of our growing levels of income and wealth should be allocated to this set of consumption issues? And then a secondary question, how should we split that allocation from our total income between private sector spending and state sector spending? The question, can we afford it, is a stupid one, and we should not allow people to ask us that question because it doesn't make any sense. Yes, we can afford it, we just have to decide what we're going to do. Second really important thing to remember is that it's true that there's ageing coming up, but there's actually been quite a lot of ageing in the past. So this is a chart that goes all the way back to 1901, before any of us in this room was born. Um, and it's true that the number of people aged 65 and over is going to rise, and rise quite quickly over the next 20 years. But look what's happened over the last 100 years. We've seen much more dramatic ageing in proportionate terms over the last 100 years than we're about to see. And the world has not fallen apart, because one of the things about economies and societies, the issues that are studied so much in the LSE, is that they're flexible. They respond. People are capable of responding. The world did not fall apart because there are more old people. It's also worth noting that the ageing is pretty dramatic. This is for people aged 65 and over. If we drew this chart for people aged 85 and over, down here there were just 61,000 people. 61,000 people aged 85 and over in 1901, and now there are 1.447 million, 25 times as many. And isn't that marvellous? Well, it's certainly marvellous if, like me, 85 doesn't seem quite so far away anymore. It's also a good antidote to the kind of golden age notion that back here, you know, all older people were being looked after in the bosom of their extended family. Well, they weren't. They were dead. You know, the, um, the first old age pension in this country was introduced about here in 1908. And you had to be over the age of 70, very poor and of good character. Well, those three were essentially mutually inconsistent. Um, so don't let's look back to something that, that was never really there. Now, I'll describe very briefly the current system. There are, there are people in this room who are far more expert in the way that the social care system works than I am, but there, there may also be some people who come here just because they're interested in the general area. So let me attempt a very brief description of the social care funding system as it affects older people, and, and I'll think just about residential care. There are many more complications that are slightly relevant, but just the key point about residential care for older people is that unlike the health service, which is free in this country, it's not free. In many ways, uh, social care is the last vestige of the poor law, not in the pejorative sense that it's often used, but just in the sense that in 1948, when lots of everything else ended up being moved to the centralised central government, this was left with local authorities. Local authorities always charge for this, and they still charge for it now. So if you need to go into residential care as an older person, uh, then you're on your own. You pay for it yourself, unless you have total wealth, including the value of your house, of less than £23,250. Um, which essentially means that if you're a homeowner, you pay for it yourself. 
And now there are all kinds of wrinkles and there are distinctions between residential care and domiciliary care, which I might say more about later if it seems relevant. But the, the, key, the key central point about the funding system, I think, is that. It's also worth saying that uh, because this is funded, this is paid for through local authorities where it's paid for at all in the means-tested regime, given what's been happening to the public finances and given particularly recently what's happened to local authority funding, there has been a very tight squeeze on spending in this area. So even the means-tested system has become more and more difficult to access. Now the very first chart that I asked <coughs> my colleagues to get ready when I started working on this was this, which is public spending on older people in England. Uh, a bit less than £150 billion pounds a year. Uh, £85 billion pounds on social security benefits, £50 billion on the NHS and just £8 billion, pounds, the almost invisible little slice at the top is public spending on older people's social care in England. Um, is £150 billion pounds a big or a small number? Well, the, none of these numbers really make easy sense, but the, the easiest thing to do for a number with England is just divide it by 50 million, and that tells you how much it is per person. So £3,000 for every man, woman and child in England is spent on older people. And of that, a bit more than half goes on social security benefits, about a third goes on the NHS, and just 6% goes on social care. I'm absolutely sure that if we started with a bar that was £150 billion high without these lines on it and then we decided where the optimal place to draw these lines was, this is not, that is not where we would draw them. And in particular, there's no doubt that this line would be much further down. We spend a suboptimally small amount of money on social care compared to what we spend on the health service. There are many people being looked after in expensive health service uh, conditions who will be much better looked after and also more cheaply but more importantly much better looked after with a higher quality of life if they were in a different setting. Uh, it's worth looking at what's been happening to the relationship between spending and need. If we assume that in 2005-06 we were spending enough in the means tested regime for older people to meet demand which is itself a big assumption and not one that I believe but even if we assume in 2005-06 we were over the following four or five years, we've seen expenditure stay flat and demand, just through the pure de demography of people, aid the, the number of older people growing, expand. We are without doubt facing a situation where the means-tested system is under almost unbearable strain. So that's a bit of background. When we began our work, we spent several months just trying to work out how to frame this issue, how to think about the question of social care, what sort of thing it was, how to get some kind of conceptual handle on it. Um, and for a few months I could see, that, you know, I was getting a bit twitchy because we didn't seem to have produced anything. I see that some of my colleagues were getting very twitchy indeed. Um, you know, these are civil servants, they like to produce something so that when somebody asks them, well, they, they say, well, I'm with this, and we hadn't really produced anything. Anyway, at the end of that we got to my favourite chart, produced with enormous help from, where are Jules and Jail? Anyway, oh, yes, they are, they are down here. As, as is the case with many lecterns, I can't really see over the top of it. Um, we produced my favourite chart, a chart that, that, that certainly helped me understand the problem and to think about the problem. This is my favourite chart. Um, and it was not easy to produce this chart. It was not easy to get together the data to produce this because one of the things that is characteristic of this area is the data is not as good as it ought to be. I think partly because it's been a local authority responsibility, we don't have the richness of data we would have in many other areas. So here again, we were extraordinarily dependent on the, the help we got from PSSIU. So what this chart shows you is imagine that you're 65. 
what's the, essentially the probability distribution of your cumulative care needs before you die. So about a quarter of 65-year-olds will die before they have any significant care needs. That could be because they die on the day after their 65th birthday, or they could live for 30 years without any care needs and then die, and that's the end of it. The median 65-year-old will have cumulative care needs of about £20,000 before death. And it's important to be clear that what this is showing is that it's true that a quarter of us won't have any care needs, but three quarters of us are going to have care needs. More of us are going to have care needs than can ever get pregnant. Okay, it's pretty important to... This is a very... Come on, come on, come on, boys, you know. I know it's tough, but it's late in the afternoon. Um, this, is more, you know, this, is more, this is more common than pregnancy. This is how important this is. Um, the median is only £20,000, but then it starts rising very dramatically. And the top 10% of people will face care needs in excess of £100,000. The people at the very top, potentially much more than that. Why, why do I love this chart so much? Well, that's partly because I, you know, I really, really love numbers, and so it's just very exciting to know the answer to this. But importantly, because it tells us, I think, most of what we need to know about what kind of thing this is. Imagine, imagine that we drew this for, for food. What would this chart look like for food, the cumulative uh, food needs of people over 65? Well, it would start with nothing, because the person who died a minute after his 65th birthday would need no food at all. And it would rise, but it would rise in nothing like the way this does. Essentially be a straight line. The longer you lived, the more food you'd need. <clears throat> what, what would it look like if we did it for housing? Again, it would start at naught, because, and then it would rise. And, <clears throat> of course, people's, people's choices about housing vary, but we wouldn't see this kind of shooting off. This, this kind of shape, where there's a great big tail-end risk, is a kind of shape that we really dislike as people. We really don't want <clears throat> the possibility that we'll end up here. What, what else might look like this? Well, the things that have this kind of shape, characteristically, would be healthcare needs. So our healthcare needs look like this. A small number of people down here with no health problems at all. Many of us with mild to moderate healthcare problems. And then a small number of people with very severe healthcare problems. And the decision we've taken about health in this country is that we're, not, you know, we're simply not willing to accept the consequences of this kind of shape. So what do we do? Well, we bundle it all up, we add it up, and we spread it out. So we pool the risk through, in this country, a National Health Service. What else has this kind of shape? Well, the consequences of your house being burgled or burning down. So some of us will never have anything go wrong like that. Some of us will have a small water leak. And some of us, the house will literally burn down. Now, now I hope... I hope everybody has insurance for their housing. Um, we don't like that. None of us want the possibility that we might face this financial consequence. So again, what do we do? We, we, we squash this down, we spread it out, we pay insurance premium, knowing that some of us will be worse off than we might have been because we'll have paid an insurance premium and we might never have claimed on it. But nonetheless, we do it because we're risk averse, because we'd much rather pay this amount than risk paying this amount. What else looks like this? Well consequence of a car crash. So there are a small number of people who drive, um, mainly women, who never have a car crash. And then there are young boys who are showing off and scratch the paint on their cars. And then there are women who get driven into by those young boys. Um, <clears throat> what do we do there? Well, actually, it's, uh, it's compulsory to have, to have some insurance. And we all, 
Again, we pull this risk. We say we, we're not interested in this possibility. We squash it down, we spread it out. Social care is the one big risk that everybody in this room faces where there's no risk pooling going on. The risk pooling in social care doesn't come until you've got down to your last £23,000, which is not a terribly interesting form of risk pooling. So it's a massive risk that the whole population faces, which we don't pool. And that's why people are so uncomfortable about it. When I started working on this, people would say to me, you know, middle-class people are very upset that they have to sell their houses. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's not the right thing to be concerned about. It's not unreasonable that better-off people should make a contribution. But it's not that they're worried about. It's not they have to make some contribution. It's that there's a possibility that they might lose everything that there's a huge risk they face and there's nothing they can do to control it. And that seems to me how we need to think about this problem. The natural response to that is a sense of fear. So what this chart shows you is at different starting levels of wealth, what proportion of all of the assets that you've ever accumulated you would lose if you had a significant social care need. So this is showing what would happen if you had £150,000 social care need. So that might be... Ah, uh, six years in a residential care home. So it's not very likely, but it is just what people are frightened by. If you've got assets of less than £23,000, then you lose almost none of them. Then very quickly you start losing most of them. So by this point, which is 5% from the bottom of the homeowner wealth distribution for this age group, you're losing 75% of all of the assets that you've ever accumulated. The person who is hardest hit is the person just below the median. This is the median. Who loses 87% of all of their assets. And then... Beyond the median, things get a lot better. So an important point that this chart makes is this is a problem not most of all for the better off, but for the least well off, because it's the least well off who are hit hardest by this, the least well off who lose most control, the least well off who are most discouraged from taking adaptive action. What we see is a consequence of the fear people feel, and it was fear that was mentioned wherever and whenever we spoke to people about this, was that people hold on to all the assets they've got, particularly the less well-off, because they're so frightened that they might end up facing the tail-end risk. As a result of that, we see almost no preventative activity. So people who would be much better off in terms of their welfare if they put a downstairs loo in or a stair lift, put some handrails in, won't do it because they're so worried about the risk of ending up in the tail-end. People feel they have no control. They feel lost. There is very little quality because there's much too little diversity, there is no market. And of course, there is massive underconsumption relative to what we would like to see because the price of consuming care, if you end up in the tail end, looks so high that people don't consume what they ought to do. How would it feel if you couldn't insure your car or your house? How differently would you feel about looking after those things, about the risks of using them? It's almost impossible to imagine what it would be like to drive a car without insurance, what it would be like to leave your house in the morning if you couldn't have insurance against it burning down. And yet that's the position we have ourselves in with the most crucial and valuable thing that we have, which is our, our lives, our control over our lives in later life. So what should we do about it? There are two extremes. One would simply be to say, well, look, this is what healthcare looks like, and in the case of healthcare, we've moved this whole lot into state provision. We've just pulled the risk across the whole population. Why don't we do that here? Well, that's what the 1999 Royal Commission recommended, 
and it wasn't accepted then at a time when there was a massive Labour majority and the public finances had just moved from surplus, from deficit unexpectedly into surplus. So if it wasn't accepted then, it certainly wouldn't be accepted now. But that's not the real reason that we didn't recommend it. The real reason that we didn't recommend it is that this is a system that has to last for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We have to believe now that this system will be there in generations' time. What we've seen in the case of a small number of countries that have gone down this road is that there's been enthusiasm when they've gone for it, and then as the public finance situation has got more difficult, this has been one of the first things to get, to get squeezed. And we've seen levels of payout reduced, and we've ended up with the worst of all possible worlds, that people thought they would be covered, and then it turns out that they're not. So the main reason that we haven't recommended taking the whole lot into the state is not just that it wouldn't happen, although it wouldn't, but that even if it did happen now, I wouldn't believe that it would last. And since it wouldn't last, it would not be a sustainable system. It's not that we can't afford it. It's certainly perfectly economically feasible to raise taxes by enough to pay for all of this. It's just that I don't think it would happen, and even if it did happen, I think it would get squashed. And that's what it seems to me the post-war period has taught us. So one extreme, just taking the whole lot into the public sector, doesn't work. Why don't we just leave it to the private sector? The state's not involved in insuring your houses. Why don't we let the private sector deal with it? Well, that's where we are now, and they're not. And the reason they're not is they don't want to, and the reason they don't want to is they'd have to be nuts to do it. The reason they have to be nuts to do it is, is we can draw, with a great deal of help from Jules and Jay, we can draw this diagram now. <clears throat> I've got no idea what it looks like in 10 years' time. I've got absolutely no idea what it looks like in 40 years' time. We have no idea what the cost of care in the tail end of this distribution might be in 40 years' time. There's just too much uncertainty. The possibility of technological and other change means that on top of the longevity risk that you've got even if you're selling an annuity, you've got an extra slab of uncertainty, which is how much it might actually cost to provide care. It's important to note that the things that we commonly insure that feel a bit like this, we only know the premium this year. So you can insure your car for this year. You can even insure yourself for private health cover for this year. What you can't do is get a price now to insure yourself for private health cover for the next 40 years because nobody knows what it might cost and any insurer that tried to do that would get into terrible trouble. There's nowhere in the world where there is a thriving market for insurance for this risk because the combination of demand side problems and supply side problems makes it to all intents and purposes impossible. So we can't just leave it to the private sector. So if we can't leave it to the private sector and we're not going to give it all to the state, the question becomes how do you share this risk between individuals in the state in a way that uh, is sustainable and likely to be long-lasting politically and deals with the concern that people face about ending up in the tail end? And many of you will know that our recommendation is this, that the, nasty, the really nasty bit of the risk is here. So what we should do is the state, that is all of us, should take the tail end risk and the bit of the risk that you should leave to individuals is the first part of the risk. So we ask individuals to continue to be responsible for the first, in our central case, £35,000 of their cumulative lifetime care needs. But if they're unlucky, unfortunate, and they end up with higher care needs than that, at that point, that 35000 the state kicks in, we've pooled the tail end risk. By pooling the tail end risk, we remove the fear of disastrous consequences. We open up a space where the private sector financial services industry now can start to get involved. 
by doing both of those things, we begin to get a market where there's scope for more diversity, for more choice, for much more early intervention. So the decision we came to is that if you're going to split this risk between the individual and the state, the natural and only sensible thing to do is to give this risk to the state because that's a risk that the private sector financial service industry will never take and pool and therefore if you don't take it into the state you'll still leave people facing catastrophic risk and you leave this to the individual. What does that do uh, to the chart I showed you earlier? Well this is the chart I showed you earlier with 87% loss of assets at the median. For the person at the median that number falls to about 20%. For the person a quarter from the bottom it falls from about 85% to about 30%. But you can see there's still a problem here that for those on very low levels of wealth there's still a very high loss of assets and that's the result of the means test. Now I've worked uh, I've worked now for 30 years on the British welfare state I've looked at many many means tests. There are many means tests in the British welfare state and means testing is not always and everywhere a bad thing by any means it can be an extraordinarily effective way of getting, at, getting support to those who need it most but there are some bad means tests in the British welfare state. And this means test, the means test in social care, wins the prize for being the worst. And there's quite a lot of competition. Um, and I don't just mean the worst now, I mean the worst going back over the whole, probably 35, you know, I've, wor I've been working on it for 30 years and when I started I looked back over five years. So you know, I, can, I can remember non-dependent deductions in the housing benefit regime. Um, Julian and I could have a discussion about non-dependent deductions uh, in the housing benefit regime and the dual tax. We won't go there. This is the worst. Uh, under the current means test, if you've got assets of less than £14,000, you get full support. From fourteen to £23,250, it's tapered away. At £23,250, it disappears altogether. Now, one of the things about economics is that precision in description is very important. So we had a lot of discussion in the Secretariat and the Commission because I, I felt that, that too often uh, we were slipping into using the term cliff edge for things that, are, that were actually tapers. But, but even I think we probably can describe this <laughs> as a cliff edge. This is a taper but this is a cliff edge. It is mind-numbingly stupid. It's inefficient, it's unfair and it's a huge incentive to cheating. Now cheating is always and everywhere wrong. The cheating in question here is alienating assets, so giving assets away to other members of the family before the means test might apply to you. It's always wrong to do that, but having a system that massively encourages cheating is itself very, very bad, and that is the kind of system we have at the moment. What should we do? <clears throat> we should do that, so we, we should increase this thing, the upper assets threshold, from 23,250 to £100,000, which would taper it away in that fashion. What consequence does that have? Well, this was what we had with just the cap. If you add the uh, increase in the upper assets threshold, you take this bit away. <clears throat> Happy to answer. It's about that. This is the interaction between a stock and a flow concept. That's why we get this massive reduction. It means that under the under our main funding proposals, nobody could risk losing more than thirty percent of their assets. There will be people, uh, we were, and we were very pleased with this. In fact, when we, when we, <coughs> when we ground this through and saw it, we, we actually felt that this was cleverer than we'd even realised. It was <coughs> very, 
I mean, you might. Well, and what, of course, what that means is we're we're more stupid than we realise, don't we? We will <clears throat> lose that. For those of you who like numbers rather than charts, for for different starting levels of wealth, and these aren't impossibly low starting levels of wealth. You know, there are there are adults living in accommodation they own in some parts of the country for whom these are actually what their wealth is. Under the current regime, the amount their maximum spends on care would be. Uh, 16,750, 26,750, uh, 46,750, 76,750, and and now let me say a little bit um, about those of working age. I'm sorry to say so small a bit about those of working age. It's just because of time constraints. We say much more in our report, and it's a very important set of issues. Why in the end do I think it's all right to ask older people to spend £35,000 on their care? Well, because actually all of us can expect to have care needs. It's more likely that we'll have care needs than that we won't. And so just as it's reasonable to expect us all to prepare for spending on our food and housing, on clothing. It's not unreasonable to expect people to prepare for predictable needs of care. So it seems to me it's not unreasonable for those who can afford it that they should spend something on their care needs, that they should use their working lives to prepare for that part of their older lives. Is that a reasonable thing to say to an 18-year-old who already has an established care need? So if somebody who reaches adulthood with an already established care need can we say, well, you should have prepared financially for this, so we expect you to pay the first £35,000 of your cost? Well, clearly, no. That would just be wrong. So it's absolutely clear that the cap should be zero for somebody who enters adulthood with an established care need. Care should be free for somebody in that position. Then I think that the, the corollary of that is that care should be free for anyone whose care needs established until, say, the middle of the working life. Partly because until the middle of the working life, most people are actually net debtors rather than net accumulators these days, but also because if you have a care need established in the first half of your working life, that's a really rather low probability event, and I think it could be characterised in some ways at least, not in every way, but in some ways as being relative misfortune and something that I think we should pull across the whole of the population. So our view is that the cap should effectively be for, un for people who, whose care needs established under the age of 40, care should just be free. There should be a cap of zero, and then the cap should rise steadily until it reach, reaches whatever level it, it's set at for everybody at the level of 35,000 pounds. Now, money. Um, we are, after all, or at least some of us are economists. Um, the miserable-looking people in here are economists, but you know, we do our best to hide it. Um, uh, 697 grey boxes, one for every billion pounds of public spending. Now, I, I now regret that these are grey because they shouldn't be grey. Public spending, whether you're on the right or the left of politics, this is not a party political point, is a marvellous thing. You know, the, the current government is not spending £697 billion by accident. They believe in the things it's being spent on. Public spending is not bad. It's just a way in which we spend money on ourselves communally rather than individually. Anyway, each of these boxes is £1 billion. Uh, £103 billion goes on the NHS. £85 billion pounds on Social Security for older people down here. £61 billion pounds on education, worth every penny. 
Um, £44 billion on defence, no comment. Um, <clears throat> social care for uh, working age people and people over retirement age, and disability benefits for adults altogether, £27 billion. Cost of these reforms, glasses on everybody, £2 billion. For £2 billion, that fact for £1.7 billion a year, if, if these reforms had already been implemented by now, they would be fully implemented, £1.7 billion. Now, the public finances are in a, a rare old pickle. It's very difficult at the moment to be the government. But could you honestly say that one four hundredth of public spending, less than one eight hundredth of total national income, is, is too much, is more than, as a society, we want to spend on taking an area where we have no control where as a result of having no control, many of the most vulnerable people in our society are miserable and living in terrible circumstances, where we have nothing like enough prevention going on, nothing like enough diversity, inadequate quality. Could it possibly be the case that one four hundredth of public spending or one eight hundredth of national income is, is more than we communally want to spend on this? How could that possibly be true? Now, of course it means either reallocating some other bit of public spending or increasing tax by, some, by that amount to get it. But the idea that that's too difficult for us, or that we don't at some level want to do it, seems to me to be just fanciful. Now, it's also worth remembering that this £1.7 billion a year is what it would have cost if it was already implemented. Um, you can't implement this kind of thing overnight. The amount of money we need in this parliament is probably in the low hundreds of millions of pounds because by the time we've actually got some legislation through and started people's meters ticking, we couldn't spend very much between now and the next election. So the current state of the public finance isn't really the thing that we should be thinking about. What we should be thinking about is how do we want to spend the 1,500 billion pounds a year that we generate in this country? Uh, it seems to me that spending an extra two of those in this area to create a system where finally people could make the kinds of choices that they want to for themselves. Finally, we could see the development of a market. Finally, we could reintroduce some kind of decency and dignity, not just in old age, but amongst those of working age. That seems to me, at least, after a year of working on it, something pretty straightforward, pretty easy to answer. And I think the answer is yes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Um, what we're going to do, as I said, we're going to hand over straight away to our first discussant, Nick Timmins. Uh, Nick has been at the Financial Times since 1996, where he's now a public policy commentator. Uh, he was a founder member of The Independent, and before that he worked for The Times and the science journal Nature. Uh, he's a visiting professor at uh, King's College, and I'm delighted to say he's now a visiting professor, or about to be, at LSE. Um, many people will be familiar with um, Nick's excellent book, The Five Giants, A Biography of the Welfare State, which is very widely read and widely cited. If you haven't got it on your shelf and read it, then get it on the way out, um, or when the bookshop opens in the morning. Um, it's a very good narrative account uh, of the welfare state. So Nick is going to offer some reflections on what the government may or may not do in response to Andrew's, um, well, I say Andrew's lecture, but in response to Andrew's report. Great, well thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here and uh, try to follow the lucidity of that. I guess this is um, 
in many ways, it's the best of times and the worst of times for Andrew's report of what he's trying to achieve. It is, at least arguably, the best of times politically. Unfortunately, it's unarguably the worst of times economically. Let's start with the politics. Now, I have no idea whether the government's going to accept this. I mean, the people who know the answer include George Osborne and David Cameron, Nick Clegg and Paul Burstow, the Social Care Minister, and they probably don't know the answer yet. And doubtless, even Andrew Lansley, the Health Secretary, and that crafter of deeply uncontroversial change, will also want a significant say. Nonetheless, the politics right now, if not the absolute best of times, are a lot more propitious than they have been for years. I mean, social care has, of course, been a growing problem for a long time, certainly for well over a decade, when the Labour government, at least for England, canned the original Royal Commission report back in 2000. Scotland, of course, didn't. But as time has gone on, the Scottish experience has only reinforced the view of many south of the border that no, West, no Westminster government, as Andrew has said, is ever likely to introduce free personal care for England. Added to that, of course, there was the bitter, fractious, frankly almost demeaning row between the political parties ahead of the general election in 2010 over Labour's National Care Service, or in Lance's words, the death tax, and Lance's minimalist alternative of some sort of private insurance system, of which I think he was the only person who could work out how he thought it might work. But awful and counterproductive, though that felt at the time, it may nonetheless prove to have been something of a watershed because it left everyone scarred and exhausted. And by everyone, I mean not just the politicians, but the many pressure groups and charities and other voices involved in this debate. I think it underlined finally that free personal care for all was not going to be an option. And there was a strong desire, and, and even though that was the strong desire of many of the charities and pressure groups in this area. And in the end, it kind of left everyone looking for a solution. The extreme depth of the disagreement in the end forced almost everyone to accept that any solution that was ever likely to be implemented would require some sort of a compromise. And it's notable just how broad the support for the package that Andrew and his commissioners have produced has been. There are now only one or two voices at most in the charity sector still arguing that the answer has to be free personal care. So at that level, politically, now is a good time. Added to that, it's just possible that the fact we have a coalition government will increase the chances of success. The smaller parties aside, there's now only one opposition party to convince, assuming the proposals are brought forward and not two. So we shouldn't get a three-way bun fight that we saw, we saw before the election. And furthermore, and I can't remember who first pointed this out, it may actually have been Andrew himself, the package is actually constructed in such a way that it can appeal to both the left and the right in very different ways. I mean, for those on the left who believe the state should do more, it does. But for those on the right, while it does involve some higher expenditure, it should also create an insurance market for long-term care products that pretty much does not exist at all at the moment. So to the right, the argument is that this is the state doing something that only the state can do. By taking the tail-end longevity risk, it creates a market that will not exist on any scale without that. There's plenty of people this idea can appeal to. But if that's the good news politically, there's some less good news, I suspect. The most important part of which is the woeful ignorance of most of the working age public about how the social care system works at the moment. Unless and until they have a relative caught up by it, huge numbers still think that somehow social care is largely free, like the NHS. 
And while the Commission's proposals will cap social care costs, care costs, people will still have to meet living costs, their accommodation costs on top. Now, of course, individuals have to meet those anyway before they enter social care. There's kind of a psychological issue here that they don't feel they're paying for it in the same way that they do feel they're paying for it if they're paying a care home provider to provide it. And for a start, they have more control in their own home. And while the Commission's package does propose limiting accommodation costs to a standard amount of 7000 to 10000 a year, providing some sort of cap, uh, one of the questions I've long been meaning to ask Andrew is I'm slightly puzzled about how that works if people want to opt for a nicer care home. Is there still a cap on it? Um, either way, the Commission's calculation that no one would have to spend more than 30% of their assets on their care costs will still nonetheless translate into a higher proportion of total assets once the living costs are taken into account. Now, for the public who do not understand that currently you can lose virtually everything, that will still sound like an awful lot of money. So while, so to speak, the political representatives, and by political representatives I include people like AGK and the other charities who campaign for the elderly, may have rallied around the report, I suspect the public at large will still take an awful lot of convincing. If that's the politics and the good news, the bad news is, of course, the economy. And that is pretty much the worst of times. I mean, if a week is a long time in politics, the six months since the report was published have not exactly been good economically. The economy is flatlining, unemployment is rising again, growth forecasts are about to be downgraded, and the crisis in the Eurozone, if it, the worst comes to the actual worst, threatens to make the 2008 credit crunch uh, look like a picnic. And public spending is already being subjected to the harshest cuts in generations, and the report does require some more public spending. Since it was published, the few discernible signals from the Treasury have been mixed, not dumping on it immediately, but not what you might describe as a large dose of overt enthusiasm either. I'll lay a penny to a pound that officials producing calculations showing the additional cost would be more than the initial 1.7 to 2 billion pounds that the Commission has calculated, and Andrew's uh, graphically outlined. And on a detailed level, at least they will be arguing for a 50,000 pound lifetime cap on care costs, though I personally always suspected that the Commission's choice of 35,000 was kind of a bargaining chip to sort of get them to stop them going off too low down. A deeper problem may be that the key to making this package work is indeed the state taking on the tail end or the longevity risk. But the Dillon Commission is not the only sector of the community asking the state to take longevity risk. The pensions industry is desperate for longevity bonds and is arguing the case vigorously for those as well. And at a sort of Chatham House rules meeting I was with between the pensions industry and the Treasury Minister a while back, uh, there didn't seem a lot of enthusiasm for longevity bonds. The Treasury, he pointed out, already takes the tail end risk for the existing social care system. It does so for the NHS, it does so for state pensions, and it's the increases that are coming in state pension age, and it does so for public sector pensions, where it is uh, noisily engaged with the unions and trying to remove some of that risk. And there wasn't an appetite for an awful lot more. Indeed, Last week in public, Steve Webb, the pensions minister, asked about longevity bonds and said, it's probably not spe total speculation. The Treasury already feels it has a lot of longevity risk already. So talking about longevity bonds, he says, clearly there's a challenge if, about whether it wants to take on yet more. So that has to be an issue there. So while the Commission's proposals may make perfect sense, someone is going to have to convince the Treasury that taking the longevity risk will indeed create a market insurance product for long-term care that will put more resources into this area and that would not otherwise appear. Now, as far as I can tell, the insurers are clearly interested in this. 
What I'm not sure is how good a job they have yet done in convincing the Treasury that they will be on the field to play in large numbers and with affordable products and on a scale that will significantly change this market. Last but not least, and I think the Commission was probably quite right to keep out of this, there is the question of where will the extra money come from. In the current climate, it's not likely to come from the general taxpayer, and indeed there are some equity reasons uh, across the generations that would argue against that. So from where will it come? What bit of spending will be cut? Or are we looking at something like a national insurance contribution for the elderly for the first time? If so, at what level? With what exemptions? And I just ask you which politician would look forward to selling that to the over 65s? So what might happen? Well, those of us who believe this is the best solution going may perhaps be in for a big disappointment. The best, the best hope, I suspect, still lies with the coalition. There are at least some signs that this matters deeply to the Liberal Democrats. Get the idea through, at least in principle, and it will be something they could point to as a significant achievement come the general election. Given the state of the economy, as well as the timing of white paper and legislation, there's little chance of this, even if it does go ahead, <coughs> beginning much before then. Uh, I mean, Andrew's argument that the early costs are tiny, a few hundred million pounds at most, is a powerful one. And I, but I hate to sound gloomy, I suspect the best hope may lie in the legislation going through without necessarily a firm start date. And legislation that would then be implemented when this was judged to be, quote unquote, affordable. There are probably parts, the standardised national portable assessment, that could perhaps come in earlier, paving the way. Uh, but in the end, and, and of course in the end, this is an issue that will not go away. Someone has to produce an answer to this eventually, and I suspect in the long run, the answer the Commission has come up with will definitely shape what we finally end up with. But it may, at the moment, prove to be the right answer at the wrong time, though personally, I hope not. The irony, of course, is that if this is what the original Royal Commission had proposed a decade ago, things would have been the other way around. The politics would have been much harder, given the mass demand then for free personal care. But the economics would have been one hell of a lot simpler. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm now going to ask Jenny Owen to come up and uh, respond. Jenny is currently Deputy Chief Executive of Essex County Council uh, and continues in her role as uh, Statutory Director for Adult Social Care. Um, she's worked as a, in social care for, for a long time uh, and worked at Essex since 2004. Uh, she was president of the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services until April last year uh, and co-chaired the highly influential uh, National Dementia Strategy up to its launch in 2008. Uh, Jenny is a member of a number of groups, one of which I'm delighted to say is the School of Social Care's uh, Advisory Board, so thank you very much for that. Uh, Jenny was awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2010 for services to social care. So Jenny is now going to offer some reflections on how the Commission's proposals might affect local authorities. Thanks very much, Martin, and good evening, everyone. Um, I had um, one of those suppressed memory moments as I was coming here this evening. You know how when you have embarrassing times in your life, you suppress them wonderfully so that uh, you can carry, carry on and cope. But it came back to me as I was walking towards the LSE this evening that the last time I came to a lecture here was about, 
uh, well, I was going to say to the to Julian and uh, Jose Luis, it was either four or five years ago when Derek Wanless was doing uh, a lecture here about funding uh, and possible fundings for social care. And afterwards, uh, it was a very good lecture. I mean, it, it brought back comparisons, of course, because we have been around these loops before. Afterwards, a lovely reception, a very nice dinner. It was late. I rushed to get my coat and my bags. It was a horrible night outside, so instead of putting the coat on, I dashed in a taxi and halfway home put my hands in my pocket, the usual debris in my coat, and it wasn't my coat. Uh, not only was it not my coat, but it was Derek Wanless's coat. <laughs> and he is six foot two or something, and I am five foot four, so he definitely had the worst of it. And I think the reason I'm telling you this, Andrew, is just keep hold of your coat. <laughs> So, but it's great to be back um, here and really absolutely wonderful um, to be talking about Andrew's recommendations. I'm talking from a personal point of view, um, and I am absolutely not an economist, so perhaps I am looking a little happier. But I think the issues for me, because I, I do two sort of main big things, I suppose, in my day job. One is that I advise the politicians locally about what the implications are for these kinds of big policy changes if they're to be implemented. What will it mean for the citizens of Essex? And what does it mean when they're talking to the national politicians? What do they need to be thinking about? And then I start to think about, oh, how am I going to implement this? You know, what do we need to do? To, to, so what are the practical issues? And you get straight into some of the kind of detail. So I thought I would share with you a little bit of those things um, that, you know, not, not wisdom, just kind of conundrums, issues, some of the sort of complexity. But I want to start by saying how much I enjoy listening to Andrew talking and how much I support uh, the recommendations uh, that he's making. And that while I'm talking personally, a lot of what I'm going to say is the view of the Association of Directors, so people who do my job across the country, the 152 of us who uh, uh, do that work. And there are a number of just very key reasons why I love hearing uh, Andrew talk. Firstly, he brings enormous clarity to a very confusing and difficult picture, much more than I have ever heard, honestly, in this area. I think he's fantastically clear. I love the way Andrew says it is totally affordable. You know, for years we've been hearing politicians say, it isn't, it's not possible, you know, it's too difficult. And uh, as you could see from his presentation this evening, you know, and particularly that last one with the two grey boxes, it is, of course, eminently affordable. It's about choice. Uh, the other thing I love is how positive he is about our, our demographics and our ageing population. You know, this, this is often perceived and portrayed as a problem. And actually, Andrew says so delightfully, uh, no, this is good news. And I think those messages, if we can keep on reinforcing those when we're talking, um, I think that's just so much more positive. Andrew didn't say it uh, tonight, but I have heard uh, Andrew talking in the past. And one of the other things you say, Andrew, is, um, this is not, there is no silver bullet. You know, there is no way that this, you know, can be solved. Uh, this isn't a solution to everything, but it takes us uh, part. It takes us on its way, on on a way to reform, and that I think is also important because sometimes you just feel the elephant in the room is too big. You know, where do you start? Uh, and so let's kind of move forward uh, in, in in the ways that we can. So I really welcome uh, Andrew's recommendations, and um, I think it's important to see it as well alongside the recommendations that the Law Commissioner 
decision-making to reform the law, because the law on social care is totally outdated. So we do need to see these things uh, uh, together in parallel. It's also, I think, really important that we all of us who have any possible influence in this don't allow this one to be killed off. You know, that, that we've seen this so many times that either, you know, the, the politics are too difficult or as Nick said, you know, the combination of politics and economics is just too difficult. If this one gets killed off again, when do you think it will ever come back again onto the agenda? Um, I was really hopeful as we reached the end of the last government and before um, Andrew's commission was, was set up that we were getting into a really good debate. You know, we were actually getting to the point of getting some... I don't think we got a kind of consensus of view about what to do but we'd certainly got a debate going uh, in the public and there was a question time do people remember there is actually a question time about how to pay for care in the future it, it was in the papers <laughs> so uh, really important that this one and andrew's got such fantastic publicity uh, over the last few months around the recommendations really important we don't let this opportunity go whatever a treasury uh, would like uh, to do I think Andrew provided a really sound set of answers to the sort of the questions in his brief and that was absolutely fundamentally about how do you make the system clearer and simpler and fairer and I think he's absolutely done that. What I'm worrying about is whether it absolutely meets the whole funding gap and I'm really worried about just the extent of that funding gap uh, as I see, uh, see it grow. I mean, we need to have a kind of short, medium and long-term strategy, I think, around the funding, future funding of, of social care. Let's remember that 82% of us in local government actually only fund substantial and critical needs. Um, that's, you know, that's been going up year on year, but it's now 82% of people. And of course, you know, the facts criteria, fair access to care, where you say, okay, we set our threshold at uh, substantial and critical. You know, it's not a science. <laughs> so these things are not applied brilliantly or fairly, but it is, it is a, just a sort of an indication of how really kind of very uh, in need you need to be uh, to be getting um, uh, into an assessed service. However, what Andrew's proposals do do is bring everyone into the system in a more equitable manner. And I have to say, when I chaired the National Dementia Strategy, the one, there were, well, there were lots of kind of you know, concerns, there were concern about people with dementia don't get diagnosed. That was a very big issue. But one of the really big issues for people with dementia is that you can have dementia for 12 years. It's a long-term condition. It's seen, people refer to it as the dementia tax because if you're in that position, needing care needs, you are definitely on the spike of Andrew's uh, graph. You are going to be in for some very high uh, care costs. And this at least addresses the point about bringing people into a more equitable system. But some of the conundrums, I and mean, costs of implementation will clearly uh, vary from place to place. So in some areas of the country, there are many more older people, older populations, um, and there will be costs keenly felt in those areas. And local government financing is about to change with the proposals about financing through business rates. Enormously complicated, kind of sends me to sleep every time we have the discussion at the corporate leadership team. I, hor horribly, uh, horrible thing to do, but you know, it's really kind of... Uh, tedious. But actually, the way that the funding, therefore, will change for local government, I think, starts to kind of make it quite complex to think about how money is going to come into, into the system for us to be spending in all the different ways we need to. So, 
and I think the point you didn't you didn't talk tonight about the your proposal around national eligibility uh, criteria. Um, you know, having standardised national criteria, I think that's quite quite complicated about how that system would work and how if you have national criteria. Do you not need national funding so that you actually get a blanket sort of coverage and a blanket threshold? Is that really achievable? However, what I do think is right is a portable, uh, a portable system of assessment of need. Because it is absolutely clear that it's unfair that if you live in Essex and you go to South End, your assessment of need will look different. And people, you know, you could be living in one street and move over to the next. It really doesn't work. And you do need to have a system of portability of those assessments. But then I think you need to take the local conditions into account for what you can buy and what you can get uh, for that uh, amount of money that is given. One of the things that's become obvious, I think, to us is we've done a lot of work about how, you, how people need much more information and advice. Um, and this actually brings in the point about how much financial information and advice you need as you plan for your old age. People don't actually like paying for information and advice in, in the social care field. That's become quite clear as we've looked at developing offers. Um, and so will people want to pay for this? Will they want to pay for the financial advice that they might need for this? Or will this have to be part of the overall costs that count towards the cap? So that brings into question for me, what is it that goes within the cap? You know, what's counted uh, in that cap? And the second question for me about the cap is how do we record what's being spent. Now this gets into some practical stuff obviously, but over time, how do we know when people have reached that 35k limit, if it is a 35k limit? If it's around the costs of a local authority, imagine somebody moving around, you know, um, having some care in one place that they've, that they've purchased, well how do we know what they've done, how do we know what that cost? and moved somewhere else and it's kind of got quite complicated. How do we know that what they've spent is for their assessed need as opposed to something else that you know they wanted, but ne not necessarily something that we in the state would pay for? A lot of complication, a lot of complicated stuff to work out, uh, I would say, around that. But um, what is clear to me is that the success of this reform would depend absolutely on the awareness of a new system, that people understood what it is that uh, they would pay for, what it was they would get help with, how the whole thing would operate. So in a way, all these sort of bits that are complicated, we have to keep, we have to try and find a simple way through this. The danger is we create another set of complexity which people don't understand. So we really need to sort of work on this. And I think Nick mentioned the hotel costs. Um, these kind of can be, you know, obviously need to explore this because this is obviously a significant amount of cost on top of uh, the 35,000 cap or whatever the cap uh, ends up being. So, you know, people need to understand that and I'm not sure the awareness is quite there yet of that as an additional cost. However, one of the things I do think about uh, the additional cost of hotel costs is that it does incentivise people staying at home, I think, a bit more. It would incentivise people staying at home and having care at home where, you know, potentially their house is paid for, they'll have their, you know, rent, they'll have their um, electricity bills and rates and all of that sort of stuff. But the hotel cost part of it might be much smaller. And actually, that is pretty much where people want to be. So this could incentivise a little bit more people staying at home. 
And clearly, one of the main uh, issues that this uh, does is it brings in a way of incentivising the private insurance sector, who just don't play here at all for the reasons Andrew said. Uh, and if we get to the point of removing this potential catastrophic cost, uh, they will come in to the market, and you can see them already uh, working up uh, how that would work. And that seems to be really critical. Why would we not uh, want that? There's just one other thing that I, I know, I, I'm sure you discussed this, Andrew, and I'm sure you made a, right, you know, a decision about why you didn't do this. But for me, in my role, I tell you the most, one of the most con um, contentious areas is continuing care. The divide between those people who have very high social care costs with a very complex long-term condition and people who would just in a slightly different way or a slightly different condition usually would get continuing care free under the NHS. So why are not some of those people in that big spike with those very, very high care costs, why aren't they defined as having continuing care needs that should be met by the NHS? Now it raises all sorts of questions about it's a free NHS and all of those sorts of things, but people are, get very, very exercised and do not understand why one thing is described as a health need and something else is described as a social care need and you honestly can't tell. It is so uh, difficult. So for me there was something about is this an opportunity a little bit missed around continuing healthcare? And I do go back to my point about I know this isn't a panacea for everything, it doesn't, it doesn't sort everything, but that one was such a contentious issue. I just want very, very briefly, because I know time's marching on, but I just wanted to say a few words about um, Essex context. Um, in the three-year period of the spending review, the amount of money coming into Essex County Council goes down by 25%. Just think about which are the big budgets uh, in the County Council. Some people would like most of the money to be spent on roads and filling potholes, but actually the biggest budget is adult social care. The biggest budget is education, but most of that is passported straight to schools. So forget, you know, there's nothing much you can do with that one. The biggest budget is adult social care, so it takes a hit. But are you going to get a 25% reduction? It takes a hit. In fact, because it's a bit protected in Essex, we're going to get a hit of about 14%. But that's real cash terms. If you take into account all of the demographic pressures and the inflation and the market pressures that are there, it's more like 40%. Now, we know that £1 billion came out of social care in the last financial year. Uh, nationally, across the country, we lost a billion pounds in social care. And I know what, what, what people are doing locally to try to make the services manageable and continue with this level of reduction that's going on. And we can't see any kind of you know, silver lining coming up around the council's budgets. So it seems to me that this needs to play in really, the changes need to play in really quickly, but this thing about what's the real gap, uh, actually, you know, we need to uh, be very clear about. It's quite difficult to, to, to count the cost of the impl um, implementation for Essex, so it's quite difficult in that role for me of uh, advising the politicians. It's quite hard for me to do this, to say this is the sort of uh, key issues for you, um, for your citizens, because it's very hard to know how many self-funders you've got. By definition, they don't come to the council. They manage their own business. We know how many are in residential care, about 5,000 in Essex. I have no idea how many people are paying for their home care, their personal support, um, uh, because I wouldn't. 
But if we did a definition, uh, if we worked it out on the basis of, okay, £1.7 billion, Andrew's calculation at, uh, you know, sort of current last year's costs, and did our proportion of the population, it would be about £50 million uh, it would cost in Essex. If we calculated it a different way, which is through saying that 5,000 people in residential care, if you, uh, it would take about uh, 2.3 years for somebody then to be coming into the state for, for, for state support. Now, quicker, actually, if they'd had non-residential care before going that. So if you added all of that up, it comes to still around 50 million. So we need the politicians to be absolutely clear that if we calculate it's around 50 million pounds of pressure in Essex for these recommendations to be, to be implemented, they need to be absolutely certain where that money's coming from. And they need to be absolutely certain in their conversations with national politicians that that's what it's going to be. Because, you know, jiggery-pokery goes on between national and local government. And, you know, you have to be absolutely on the ball uh, around it. And just the, the sort of... The, the other point to make about this is it, has, it will have a massive impact on the residential care market. I don't know how many of you have heard um, residential care independent sector providers say that private payers subsidise um, the, the people who are paid for by local government. We have, you know, by our purchasing power, by our contracting power, we pay less than private people pay uh, in residential care. If this came in and changed the ratio of people who were actually funded by the public purse, so at the moment we buy 50% of the beds, if the public purse was then paying for, under these calculations, it would be nearer 80%, then you can see how the overall amount of money going into the independent sector uh, residential care providers would be less. And that would therefore put much more pressure on the cost of fees uh, in residential care. We already have, can see the pressures they're under. We've seen Southern Cross go down this year. I have a number of providers in Essex who are uh, really feeling the squeeze. Now, if that ratio of private uh, payers to public funded payers changes, the fee levels would change and that whole market uh, dynamic uh, comes into play and it's a, an interesting one for us to, uh, to, to think about. Enough detail. I just want, in conclusion, uh, to say I'm a, a big fan of Andrews. I'm absolutely. I, I would be delighted to work through some of these complex issues because it would be. It would mean that government would be doing something about it, and I don't think there's any other option. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jenny. Um, we've got some time for questions. So, uh, can I just ask? When you ask a question, say who you are, and uh, can you be as brief as possible, and we'll get some brief responses so we can get many in there. So I'm not sure we've got microphones. Yeah. Yes, so there's one there. Somebody can... Okay, so... A microphone here. So one... If you can get this. Yep. <coughs> so, sorry, my, my name is Dr. Shibley Rahman. I'm uh, disabled, so please bear with me. I found the Andrew's talk really interesting. My MBA hat on made me think of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Economics with Akloff, Spence, and Siglitz on risk and information symmetry. From an economics point of view, I thought it was brilliant. With my PhD hat on, my PhD at Cambridge was in early onset dementia. 
and increasingly in my postdoc I've become interested in the quality of life of patients with dementia uh, and well-being which is actually a political threat. I was, uh, Andrew will understand the need for assumptions in economics and one assumption I felt Andrew should have addressed better perhaps I submit would be to address to what extent the NHS and social care budgets are separate. Because if you consider early onset dementia, there are massive improvements that can be made for people's quality of life through social care, which possibly could come out of an NHS budget. Okay, thank you very much. I think we'll just take two or three questions perhaps and then so there's one just along the row um, there. Just so you know, we have questions upstairs as well. Okay, okay, so we'll do one then, one upstairs. Uh, we'll Paul Jenkins from the mental health charity Rethink Mental Illness. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for an excellent lecture and for the comments from the uh, others. Um, as somebody who, had, who shares the admiration for what you've done, but shares a bit of Nick's um, uh, as concern that it might be the, the right answer at the wrong time, what do you think about shifting some of the focus of the arguments for the case into the questions of the contribution social care makes to the sustainability of the, uh, of the NHS? And also this issue, if you address the underconsumption of social care, the opportunities that has in terms of actually economic, uh, economic stimulus. Okay, thank you. We'll take another couple of questions, the one up the top there, yes. Um, I'm Paul Saper, LCS International. Um, uh, my um, questions to the panel are um, sort of this. And I can understand um, and the government's looking at this, or Treasury's looking at this, looking at the overall economic cost. And what they're concerned about is if, if, if there are, and I think uh, the last speakers sort of touched on this, if there is an undermining of the care home industry, then there's going to be a significant effect on the banks um, and the investment firms and uh, unemployment, etc., as well. One of the worries are, um, will, um, will, there, um, will the new system actually impose on individual providers um, an actual cap on the amount that they can charge for the housing care, for, uh, um, for the housing costs um, over the period of their life? Is, is, is it going to be a cap at the beginning, or what happens when the individual dies? Sorry, when the individual runs out of money, and uh, and at that stage it's got to be funded 100% by the by the local authority, um, will there actually be you know will the cost actually be brought down to to the type of um, sort of price that they are are you know are currently paying, or will it actually still stay at the higher premium rate? And my second question is slightly different. Can we just take that one, because we've got a bit short of time. Let's go to Andrew first and ask the others if they want to contribute. So, so. Um, I think Dr. Rahman's and Paul Jenkins' point <coughs> can be brought together. There, there clearly is a link between the NHS and social care budgets. The line drawn between them can only be drawn on a piece of paper. Um, it goes a bit also to Jenny's point about continuing care. The distinctions in these areas are almost impossible to draw, and we did indeed spend a long time thinking about continuing care. I think there is a lot to be said about the potential benefits of further integration. There is a lot, lot of money to be drawn out there. Shift, and there, there clearly has been a shift of social care responsibilities and between social care and, and the health service, and that is a, a confusion and has been bad. Uh, underconsumption in, under the current circumstances certainly leads to people having greater needs than they otherwise might have, which turns out to be very expensive. 
So I think there are strong economic arguments about doing this better. We fought, we fought shy of putting any numbers about that in our report. And the reason for that is I've worked with the Treasury for 30 years. And I know that if we put any numbers in the report that could be undermined, uh, then they would have been undermined, and that risked undermining the whole credibility. Uh, and, and numbers in this area would necessarily be speculative. My own belief is they're, they're actually quite large. Um, there are potentially very big spillovers to come to Paul's question. Um, uh, my own view, though, is that we make, in, in the long run, we make them better by these reforms. Would there be a cap on the amount that people could charge under the new regime? Well, no, the way in which the cap on accommodation costs would work is that local authority would say, okay, we need to decide how much we'll spend for one of our customers. And that amount will be whatever, will be, let's say it's £26,000 minus whatever the accommodation charge cap will be. So what we will pay for somebody who is either in our, in our care or somebody who's beyond the cap will be this amount. If, if, if the individuals in question want to spend more than that, they're entirely free to do so. This is the amount that we will, that we will allocate to them. So I think it will actually create more flexibility. There's no doubt, though, that there are these cross-subsidies going on at the moment, but they're not sustainable. We shouldn't build a system on a bunch of unsustainable cross-subsidies, which is what we have right now. So, Nick and Jane, do you want to say anything further on those responses? No, I mean, the, the NHS social care argument is clearly a very difficult one. Um, I mean, the problem, the, the, you know, if, if I was sitting inside the NHS at the moment, I'd be rather frightened about all this, all this sort of talk, because you're already the health service is handing over a billion pounds a year to social care, and I think there's some evidence that a bunch of things that have been redefined as being social health care have become redefined as social care, and actually there's not really that much money going, ex extra additional money going to the social care system, uh, because people are budget shifting. Um, and if you're, if you're sitting in the health service, if you're sitting in a acute hospital or a, or a primary care trust at the moment, uh, there's the money that's being taken out of the health budget to go to social care. They're about to ring fence and remove the public health budget and give that to the local authorities. And they have, and actually no one has a, the remotest idea of what's actually spent on public health. And it varies hugely around the country. Uh, and again, there's a fear that money that is currently in public health will end up being spent on you know, potholes, fixing the road. I mean, it stops people having accidents, doesn't it? It's good. You, you argue it's health-related expenditure. Uh, so if you're sitting in the health service over the next few years, the idea that someone's going to take away some of your money is going to feel very, very frightening. But it remains equally true that there are some pretty daft divisions between what we call healthcare and what we call social care. Jenny? Well, I mean, I, that's absolutely true. I'm a bit of a fan of um, a billion pounds worth of health money coming over to social care, even though uh, it uh, has, um, you know, there has been activity coming uh, with it, it has at least meant you're having those discussions about what you're going to do with that and what you might be doing that, is, that has outcomes for people rather than just looking at, you know, arguing between services. So, and it's interesting that it, it, it very much seems to me that what Stephen Dorrell is doing in the Health Select, Select Committee at the moment is pretty much, he's got his mindset, I think, on having pooled budgets and bringing money together. So watch that space, I think. Okay, we've got time for a couple of questions. So maybe I'll want to. Can't see people in the dark. Yes. One here. Sorry. <laughs> My name's Adam Oliver from the LSE. Uh, at the beginning, Andrew, you said that um, you know there's a lack of interest in social care amongst various different parties, amongst everybody, really, is what you were saying. 
Why do you think that is? And I mean, I agree with you on that, actually, but why do you think that is? And uh, what can be done about it? Okay, and then Bledin, I'm going to ask you to ask a question of similar length to Adam's, okay? So, <laughs> so Bledin, there's a microphone. Um, Nick was making the point that um, HMT is a very strong interest um, in getting voluntary insurance take-up um, when such products exist. Um, surely the uh, Americans, um, in the work on the development of the Class Act, um, Richard Frank and the um, others at ASPE, um, would, um, must have strolled through all the evidence there is um, from the Connecticut partnerships and its replications um, and its um, descendants um, pr precisely to that issue. Um, one, is it um, relevant um, to tightening and reassuring um, the HMT uh, about your estimates? Um, and two, um, am I completely missed the point and not um, understood the issue and is, is my point irrelevant? Thank you. Thank you. So should we we'll go along again? Uh, why, is, why is there a lack of interest in social care? I think one reason is that the system stinks. <laughs> so if you're a politician, there's no, you know, why would you stand up and talk about the social care system? Whether, whether you're a central government politician or a local government Who's politician. The US system stinks? Uh, but they don't believe it stinks. Whereas actually British politicians do believe that, that, that this system is an embarrassment. I mean, they just are embarrassed by it. I mean, I think both local and central government politicians are embarrassed by it, and they're right to be embarrassed by it, so that doesn't help. Um, social workers are on the back foot for reasons that I find, well, I don't find them obscure, but one of the things that I found in the year I worked on this is there's fabulous care being provided, but we don't talk about that very much because it's not a good story. So the only stories we get are embarrassing stories, and that makes it more difficult. And then lastly, at the moment, people, individuals don't want to think about it and talk about it because there's nothing they can do. That because we have this, because you face this uncapped risk, people don't have the opportunity to take control of it. The private sector is not interested in being involved because there's nothing they can do. So, so the reason we don't talk about it is there's nothing we can do about it. So I think you know if we get a decent a system that politicians could feel a bit less embarrassed about, that would help. If we had a system that the private sector financial services industry had a stake in, that would help because. That, you know, one of the reasons we hear so much about pensions now is that there are people who want you to take out a pension uh, and they're very good at, in, at making noise. So I think that the part of the reason is the system is horrible. The other is that you know, the end of people's lives is not something we like talking about. We don't like thinking about our own mortality, but I think we can make it more comfortable if we could feel we had some control over that end of our lives. Um, the I, mean, I didn't entirely catch the whole of Bledin's question, I think, but I think essentially he was saying, well, the Class Act in the States, which tried to do some of these things, surely they looked to see if they could find ways of making it work. Um, they did, but in a slightly different context, because there was no compulsion involved. You know, in this country, what I'm suggesting is compulsorily taking away the tail end risk. And my view is that the, the reason that the, essentially the Class Act measures we're never going to work in the States is that they weren't willing to go that step and go for compulsory pooling of the tail end risk. Uh, all of the conversations I've had with the private sector financial services industry suggest that there are lots of things that they are really rather keen to do. And, and not just the, well, actually even Age UK's financial services activity is, is seeking to be profit made. It's not just the big private companies, but also some of the big charities also want to get involved. I'm pretty confident we would see this happen, mainly because in the end it should just be part of our retirement planning. This should not be something separate to our pension provision. This is part of what happens to us as we get older, and so it ought to be part of that activity. The Treasury, uh, I'm sure in the end we will manage to knock them into the kingdom.
that's very optimistic. Jenny and then Nick. Yeah. Well, ju just very briefly on your point, I, I, I was visiting somewhere today that was a very, very small unit offering specialist care for people with dementia, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and that's absolutely right, there is fantastic work goes out, uh, out there. But actually, I think almost everybody finds it very, very difficult trying to get into the system. And as a director and somebody who's been in social care for 35 years, I found it just as difficult when I was trying to sort my mum out in another place, in another part of the country. Everybody who tries to get into the system usually finds it really complicated. And people don't know it's going to be complicated until they start to do it. It's a kind of mystery. They sort of think it's going to be managed a bit like the NHS. There'll be a way of doing it. I think how complicated it is takes people by surprise. And I think that is one of the real difficulties. It's sort of hidden until you need it. And when you need it, it it's very, very complex. When you're in, I think you can have some well, great experiences. In terms of the politics, I think, I think it comes as a total surprise, the complexity. Real total surprise. And so it's not like it's something that everybody will experience and therefore everybody has a view about. Um, I agree with a lot with Andrew's point that people, people don't want to think about this stuff because it lacks the glamour of healthcare. It's not curable. You don't want to think about it. The other thing is it's invisible. Uh, I mean, education hospitals are great iconic buildings and there's loads of activity around them, people going in and out. You know, if people are living at home, the greater their disability, the less mobile they will be, the less they will be seen. Even if they're in a home, you don't see a lot of activity around a care home, do you? You either you know, join up and volunteer and get involved or you see nothing. So there's a complete lack of visibility to social care despite its scale. And it lacks the sort of icons that other big public services have of buildings that people are sort of familiar with and see activity around. That is deliberate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to draw a close. I've got two things to say. Firstly, that uh, please do come and join uh, the panel. Uh, we're up on the fifth floor. If you're able to, I suggest using the stairs. I was your wait about ten minutes to get a lift. Uh, but in the senior dining room, the fifth floor, there's food and drink. Um, and then the other thing I want to do is to thank... Uh, Andrew, Jenny and Nick for some brilliant presentations and a very, very good discussion. So thank you very much.